Hey, if you love the Orville, head to patreon.com slash the Penske file. Sign up for our $5 tier by June 5th. If you do that, you're going to get exclusive access to me and Clay covering four Orville episodes. And uh, if you're not a member by June 5th, you won't be able to listen to them anywhere at any time. So patreon.com slash the Penske file by June 5th if you want to hear our thoughts about four Orville episodes. Thanks. Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Continuing our run through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Right now we're up to the episode called Blaze of Glory. 23rd episode of the fifth season, aired on May 12th, 1997. Written by Iris Stephen Bear, Robert Hewitt Wolf, directed by Kim Friedman. And in this episode, in order to prevent a Maquis missile attack from reaching Cardassia... Cisco must force Starfleet trader Eddington to lead him to the launch site. We're joined by Darren for this one. Clay is not here, but Darren is taking his place as you are wont to flip-flop between when one of us can't be here, you are the person who fills that void. So how are you? I'm grand. I'm just getting myself into Clay's particular headspace now. It's uh, It may take some adjustment. Did you watch a lot of Buffy the Vampire to make some <laughs> references to that and uh, <laughs> talk, talk about how things are going with the siding of your house and everything like that? And we're ready to go if you're ready to go. Um, I actually literally don't have any siding on my house, so I feel like I can't connect with Clay as a character. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> siding is uh, the American dream. All right, so let's talk about uh, Blaze of Glory. I'm terrorist, unfortunately. Which is Michael Eddington's um, farewell, his denouement, I suppose you would say. Uh, we say goodbye to a character who we barely knew, but we saw him grow and develop, I suppose, over the course of a couple episodes. So we're going to take a break. I'm going to play an audio clip. Me and Darren are going to come back and break down Blaze of Glory. That's what you do when you're in prison. Nothing. Just sit back and wait for the next counseling session. The next psychological evaluation. The next rehabilitation seminar. What if I could get you out of here? Arrange a pardon in exchange for your helping me. Oh, you like this, don't you, Ben? You like deciding the fate of others. It makes you feel important. It's not about me. Do you want your freedom or not? Freedom, huh? Tell me if they did release me. Where would I go? What would I do? Anything you want. What about bringing the Marquis back from the dead? Can I do that? Can you? Can anyone? No. I didn't think so. All right. So, Darren, I usually ask, we have uh, very few guests at this point in the show, so it's uh, it's become less of a thing of trying to fit people into what episode would work for them. You actually chose Blaze of Glory, so why don't you explain why you chose this one? I just have a huge sort of soft spot for it. I think it's an episode that's somewhat underrated, to be fair. It happens quite a bit in this stretch of the fifth season where you have this sort of sense of momentum coming out of the middle two-parter, you know, in Purgatory Shadow by Inferno's Light heading towards the finale. And you have all these big episodes that are happening. You have these things that people talk about, ties of blood and water. You have, like, in the cards, even things like a simple investigation. Not simple investigation, Dr. Bashir, I presume. And in that sort of shuffle, you have a host of really good episodes that tend to get lost and sort of not really talked about. Children of Time, which is the, the last one you recovered, would be one of those. But Blaze of Glory is, is that for me, because it's a low-key episode that demonstrates a lot of what Deep Space Nine does really 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 well and in a very unshowy way and in a way that's not necessarily sort of recognized when people talk about in inverted commas what Deep Space Nine does very well I mean you, you pointed to the fact that like Eddington who is a character 
who we actually see relatively little of, sort of, you know, in terms of actual appearances over the course of Deep Space Nine. And in particular, like, it's telling that you only really get characterization of Eddington in maybe four of those episodes in total. But he ends up feeling like a much more integral part of Deep Space Nine because he's so well-developed. But even things like that, the fact that, like, what distinguishes Deep Space Nine and what's interesting about Deep Space Nine in terms of, like, serialized storytelling, and we're in the stage of Deep Space Nine where we're sort of committed to that at this point, where it's very clear that, like, this season is building... This season has been building towards one thing, and it's now building towards another. There's a clear march towards the series, the season finale. And there's a very strong sense, like, if you were watching this for the first time, and I'm kind of, you know, it's a little sad that Clay's not here, because I can't be curious what he's making of this stretch of the season, watching it for the first time. But you have a sense of where it's going. And I remember when I was first watching it, there was a wonderful tension between where watching the episodes, you know that it's going towards this possibility of war between the Federation and Cardassia and the Dominion. But you also, watching it the first time, had never seen Star Trek do something like that before. So you're wondering, are they actually going to do it? It's like watching somebody dangling over the edge of a cliff and wondering if they're going to jump. And it's kind of, that's all happening here. But what's interesting about Blaze of Glory is that it demonstrates one of the more interesting aspects of how Deep Space Nine does serialize storytelling, which is it tends to tidy up after itself as it goes. Um, it doesn't let threads dangle for extended periods of time. It tends to, like, sort out and to clear the decks every once in a while and move on rather than having these big overarching questions that run from beginning to end of the series. I mean, you could argue that, like, what is the point of the emissary is a question that runs from emissary through to what you leave behind. But what's remarkable with Deep Space Nine is it tends to set up questions and then answer them and then use those answers to sort of springboard to other things. Like, take Odo's mysterious backstory, which is a huge driving force in season one and a little bit of season two. Nowadays, a serialized drama would continue that for an extended period of time and, like, try and wring as much tension out of it as possible. But Deep Space Nine answers that at the start of the third season and explains he's a founder, and that becomes its own other kettle of fish. And here you have, like, as Deep Space Nine is getting ready to move on to another part of its, like, development, another part of the story that's telling in its sort of larger scheme of things, you have the show actually looking around and saying, well, actually, we've kind of accumulated a bit of clutter that we don't really need. And, and in particular, this is the Maquis, but even the character of Michael Eddington. So let's do the responsible thing of instead of letting that thread run loose and dangle and, like, either forgetting about it entirely or, like, having to deal with it later down the road when we're dealing with other things that we're more preoccupied with then... Why don't we take a scissors to it now and just cut it off and wrap this up, even though it's not, A, it's not the season finale, and B, it's not the final season. And I really, really like that about Blaze of Glory. I think it does it very, very well. It's not the only story that they've done that with. There is, I think there's two others, which I am not remembering what they are, that they do in the season where they kind of end it and they decide that, um, me and Claire were talking about it, just like, it, it's obvious that the, I, I, I think that, Something I've realized kind of is that what maybe saves DS9 in some ways is that our sense of season five is actually that the characters at this point are kind of becoming repetitive in their storytelling. Kira in particular strikes us that way where every Kira story is about her, like you meet a former terrorist friend and she reminisces about it and realizes like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe some things I did were bad. Maybe some things were good. <laughs> and at at a certain point, like you're you're hitting that and you're feeling the repetitive nature and you're going, wow, this this show has another 50 episodes to go through. And I think what makes it special is that the Dominion War isn't special just because it's a um big event in Star Trek. 
It's special because it allows one of the series to actually reboot itself in a significant way. And it, it provides this like new fuel to the fire to get the stories to keep going. Yeah. And getting rid of a lot of the dry wood, the tinder, I suppose, that's laying around at their feet right now feels like it's a big point of what season five is trying to do. They get rid of Eddington. They get rid of the Maquis. The Maquis are mentioned again after this. Um, and there's a couple other ones which I'm, I'm flaking on, but we did talk about one, them when they came up. I Odo guess I, being a human for a little while is one of the yes, big ones, I think, in the fifth yeah, season, where it's just like, yeah, we're <laughs> done with that. Um, it's like you, you, you dealt with it for like half an episode. It's like, yeah, we're done with that. Yeah, and I think over the stretch of where he was human for like eight episodes, I think only one episode actually talked about it in any meaningful way, besides him being able to be punched and knocked out in a couple episodes. Uh, but so I guess my my point of contention would be here that when we started this series, uh, people were saying that they hate the Maquis storyline, they don't like the Maquis storyline, they, they, they feel it's bad. And I was watching it earlier, and I think that my mind's eye memory was different, where I was going, you know what? I kind of like the Maquis. I think I can defend them. I think the longer the Maquis went on, and same with Eddington, the longer that they went on, I think the less effective they are, because my, I believe that my headcanon of what the Maquis are is superior to what the show's execution claims that the Maquis are. And I don't know if you want to talk about the Maquis as an as a uh, like a, a storytelling arc across their entire DS9 experience. No, I'm kind of curious about what your your headcanon is of the Maquis versus what the show actually delivers. I'm kind of curious to get your angle on that when you sort of dangle that out there. So, uh, my, my take of the original conception of the Maquis, which is the way they started, is that it's a group of colonists who, because of this sort of bureaucratic process between the Federation and Cardassia. Uh, where the Federation is, you could argue, somewhat cowardly towards what their rights and protecting their citizens are, they create this terrorist group that, in my opinion, actually makes sense in a post-scarcity universe. Because what they did was that they took people's homes from them. It doesn't matter that they could relocate them to another planet or anything. It's more personal than that. It's about that they got screwed out of what was theirs by this bureaucratic entity that didn't seem to have their best interests in heart. And instead... We have a scene in this episode in particular where Eddington, for some reason, waxes poetic about growing corn. And it's like, <laughs> what, what what does that have to do with the Maquis struggle? Like, I that just goes back into this weird fetish that Star Trek has always had since the original series about how labor is good. Like, doing work is very good in the eyes of Star Trek. And I feel they lost the path. And it's interesting because... For everything else that the show does really well politically, I think that they lost track of what the Maquis were trying to do and what fueled them and why Eddington would be a successful leader who eventually leads to their downfall. I think they only barely touch that in this episode in his arc. So so how do you want to respond to that, I guess? I, I sort of, I would kind of, I see where you're coming from and I think it's very obvious when you look at how, again, this is the thing with the Maquis and the weird paradox of the Maquis, where the Maquis were created in terms of, like, the larger Star Trek franchise for one purpose. And they're notable for being, like, one of the rare franchise elements that was designed for, like, what would now be called, you know, synergy across the various Star Trek franchise components. They were designed to connect Star Trek The Next Generation to Star Trek Voyager to Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The idea was you'd have this thread running through the seventh season of The Next Generation, running through the second season of Deep Space Nine, and it would serve as a launching pad for Voyager. It's the kind of thing that we associate now with what Marvel does with their characters, where they'll, they'll see ideas and then they'll sort of pop out and develop them in other ways later on 
And what's interesting about the Maquis is that, like, um, the Maquis were created specifically to launch Voyager. That was their sole purpose. The idea was they were there because Michael Piller wanted there to be conflict on the Voyager crew between Starfleet and a crew of terrorists. So they reverse engineered the concept from that. The paradox being that, like, once that happened, Voyager was off in the Delta Quadrant to decide what it wanted to do with these characters and whether it wanted to use them well. Spoiler, maybe it didn't. Uh, and also, like, The Next Generation, which had devoted a certain part of its final season to the Maquis, had obviously come to an end, so it didn't have to deal with the Maquis. So you have Deep Space Nine sort of holding this hot potato. And it's interesting when you talk about the idea of the Maquis as kind of post-scarcity terrorists and this weird new agey vibe that runs through them, which I am 110% certain is a legacy of Pillar. Uh, Pillar famously being the man responsible for like Chakotay, the character. Uh, but even things like when you look at the use of them in The Next Generation, where they're explicitly compared to Native Americans, despite the fact that, you know, Native Americans lived on the American continent before the colonists arrived, as opposed to colonizing the continent and then being displaced by another right. sort of diplomatic agreement. So it doesn't, like, that analogy doesn't hold. And I think you're right that there's a, there's the, a, the tension with the Maki. I don't, you know, we may not agree entirely on what that tension is and why it doesn't work. But one of the interesting things about Deep Space Nine, and I think we talked about when we talked about Defiant, is the sense that the writers working on Deep Space Nine uh, tend to be a bit more cynical about the Maquis. Like, if you look at the Maquis Part 1 and Part 2, but also we talked about Undefiant, there's this weird sense of, like, middle-class terrorism there, where Kira's like, look, you guys have no idea how to actually be terrorists. You have no idea what you're doing. You're just a bunch of people having midlife crisis. Cal Hudson taking off his Starfleet uniform and running off to play, like, Star Wars, basically. Michael Eddington having a midlife crisis and running off to be, you know, sort of Han Solo or whatever he imagines himself to be. And it's interesting because, like, you talk about that scene in Blaze of Glory where Eddington's talking about growing his own potatoes. And, like, being honest, I mean, and again, maybe this is just me projecting as a viewer, but, like, watching it, it really seems like the show isn't endorsing Eddington's weird fetishization. Same thing, like, you had in the second season with the episode Paradise, where you have the show playing with this idea of getting sort of, like, back to nature and fetishizing back to nature, but it's really just a form of, like, you know, fascist Luddism, basically. But here you have this idea of Eddington, and he sounds like Gwyneth Paltrow. He really hmm. does. He sounds he's insufferable. He's the guy you have at a dinner party and won't shut up. But it's, it's like, and I don't think that you're meant to like him in that scene. And I kind of like that about him. Because it's very true to who Eddington is, and it's very true to the kind of person who would run off and join a terrorist organization because he felt a little bit insecure, or he hadn't found a life purpose or a goal. Um, and he sort of, like, lost his way and sort of ventured over and sort of, like, decided to throw in his lot with a bunch of people who he has no stake. Eddington has no stake in the actual conflict in the demilitarized zone. There's no mention of him having family there. He's never no lived there. No one seems he to ever. Any, any, anyone yeah. we've ever met of the Maquis has, seems to have no relation to actually living in the Maquis demilitarized zone or whatever they call it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a very conscious sort of choice from, uh, like, Deep Space Nine and the writers. And I think there's a cynicism there. That works rather well. Now, again, this gets rather complicated when you get to the end of Blaze of Glory, when Cisco's all of a sudden, like, romantically eulogizing Eddington. But yeah. I think it works relatively well in terms of the show's overall arc, where there's a sense of not necessarily liking or endorsing them or uncritically endorsing them in any way, shape, or in, in sort of in any real sense. There's a sense that, like, the writers got handed this by, you know, again, Michael Pillar, I suspect, based on, as you point out, the, the new ageism of it all. Um, 
But I, I think that like there is a cynicism there about how deep Space Nine handles the Maquis that I actually quite like. Uh, and I think Blaze of Glory handles relatively well. Because even though it is cynical, it's still sympathetic to a certain extent because, you know, these people may be very stupid and they may be very selfish and they may have done some very, very reckless things. And they may be insufferable when they talk about growing food themselves and critiquing mm. Cisco's dinner. Like, again, like Eddington, if you want to underscore how much of an asshole he is, he's like, Remember when you cooked us dinner and you, you prepared all those vegetables yourself in the hydroponic spray? And that must have been a lot of effort. I mean, you were my commanding officer. You, you overseasoned it a bit. I just wanted yeah. to let you know that. With, uh, with tarragon specifically. <laughs> yeah. Does, doesn't even say overseasoned. He says, you too, too much tarragon, too much. I remember it. What a dick. Um, and I think the show is, is <laughs> like, I don't think the show is uncritically endorsing him in that sense. And I think that makes it a bit more interesting than the way that The Next Generation handled uh like the Maquis, where there was this huge association of like weird guilt over it um, with Picard's ancestors and, and that sort of connection that you had there. And obviously the association of Rolaren, who herself had been introduced as a refugee who'd experienced the horrors of Cardassian occupation firsthand on her own planet, as opposed to one that she colonized. And even on Voyager, where the Maquis are presented as like ridiculously noble and heroic, like Chakotay is presented while incredibly bland and sculpted from wood, as a person of integral, you know, sort of great integrity and decency, I think this design is more ambiguous about it, and I kind of like that aspect of it. I like Eddington. The the one thing I I I generally have a better memory of Eddington than I think that I've learned about him on this recent rewatch, and I think that I think that the problem with Eddington is that he he and the Maquis are a bit too ill-defined for me to really feel like the show knows what they're saying with him. Because I, I would agree with you that I think the best part of his entire arc is his ending, where he's kind of realizing that his megaloman, megalomaniacal plans have kind of destroyed the Maquis at that point. Like, he was the leader who thought too big, was a bit too uh, romantic, and they call him romantic in this episode. He was talking about uh, uh, Jalvert in the you know the previous <laughs> yeah. one and everything where they're talking about classical literature. That really works for me. However, I think that it's... I, I think it was a mistake t- to turn him that way, if only in the sense that if they're telling the story where you barely ever get to see the Maquis, I need to operate under the assumption that the Maquis are an honorable sort of you know, honorable in quotations, organization that it's a tragedy that their leader becomes a madman. And I don't get that that sense because you never meet the Maquis in these things. You only meet people who sort of join them later on. You never really get the sense of what they're like at a grassroots level. And I, I think that Eddington going down that route, his story makes more sense to me on this limited storytelling basis if he is much more cliche and basically is trying to do the right thing but fails at it as opposed to him being kind of a flawed character from the start and i think he's unlikable enough where that that kind of ruins it and the other problem that i have with it and you can respond to this is when cisco and eddington share scenes i feel like neither of them really understands what the other one is talking about and i feel that's a problem because they're supposed to be such foils against each other that they should be able to set each other off with insults and they should really be able to get under their skin. But Eddington says at one point that Cisco is obsessed with getting his Admiral uniform. And I never get the sense that that's what drives Cisco. So when they have these conversations, I feel that they're, 
they're missing the mark with each other. Like neither one is really in tune with what the other one wants. And I don't know if that's a writer problem where they're not really sure how they want to go with it. But I think it, it like destroys every single one of their scenes because I never, I've never been able to understand why Eddington so irritates Cisco. You know what I mean? I I actually really like the dynamic between Eddington and Cisco, and this is interesting because again, you you talked about head canning for head canon for the Maquis, and I wonder how much of this is my own head canon as opposed to how much is like suggested by the show. I think it's definitely suggested by the show. I think it's very heavily implied. I'm not sure if it's rendered as sort of as explicit as it might be. But the interesting thing about Cisco, and it's kind of interesting when you talk about this idea of like Cisco measuring himself for an admiral's uniform. Cisco throughout Deep Space Nine has this strong central arc, uh, which is anchored in this idea of his responsibility or his vision of himself as he sees himself belonging to Starfleet, and particularly the identity that sort of flows from that. And like when he was introduced in Emissary, he was a washed up officer. He kind of, he was a commander on the Saratoga. You know, he was like second in command, which in Star Trek talk, you know, Riker being the prime example, second in command is like, you're just waiting for a shot at the big chair. You're waiting to be made captain. It's like, you're going places. And like, he has a role, he's on a ship. And then Wolf 359 happens and Cisco is sort of exiled to Earth. He's widowed and he ends up working back at Utopia Planitia um, in Mars, obviously. But the interesting thing about Cisco is that despite that, he never gave up his commission. He never resigned. He never took any time for himself. He never doubted the uniform. In fact, he seems to have invested a great deal of time in his uniform. Like when he gets assigned to the Bajor sector with his son Jake, and it's made very clear that he doesn't see this as something that is healthy for himself or for his relationship with Jake. He doesn't resign. He accepts the commission and he accepts the responsibilities put on him. He's very, very, like, resistant to, to Picard for obvious reasons, given Picard's involvement in Wolf 359. But Cisco sees himself as belonging there. And, you know, he's appointed emissary and stuff like that. But he always sees himself as a Starfleet officer. And when the See, inter- I, 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 guess I, would, I guess I would push back on that and say that the, the, the profit interaction, to me, is more what drives Cisco in that choice. And... What's kind of frustrating is that because they don't really stress the profit nature on the show or like him, his role as the emissary, I, I, I sort of, I'll throw it back to you. I I understand what you're saying about his drive of being Starfleet, but would you, if you just want to uh, respond to this point and then go back to it, wouldn't you say that Cisco is the least Starfleety of the captains we've seen so far? Well, th- across that, Kirk and Picard. This actually gets gets into sort of what I was uh, kind of what, sure, I, sure. what I was suggesting there, actually, which is kind of the interesting thing with Cisco. Cisco is most definitely uh, the least Starfleety of the captains uh, in comparison to Kirk, in comparison to Cisco. But even if you want to go to Janeway, when Janeway's trying the Delta Quadrant, she never doubts that she's going to do things by the book. Or even Archer, um, you know, back in in Enterprise, where Archer's like defining characteristic is that he's gung ho, stereotypical sort of like captain who doesn't really think about things and doesn't really care about you know sort of authority and hire he's just out there to be a pilot and to fly the ship off and to take responsibility and obviously in the third season archer sort of questions that a little bit but generally speaking he's very archetypical harrison ford style sort of like you know commanding officer but with cisco you have this tension running through it where it's very clear that he's not the archetypal starfleet captain and this is kind of the thing that deep space nine does repeatedly where deep space nine like looks beyond starfleet there's a wonderful moment um early in the episode i think it's the very first scene in the episode where he's cooking dinner for nog and jake and he's talking about like jake nog is talking about how much he loves squid and cisco's explained that he actually made tube uh, tube grub uh puree 
uh, to put on there, which is an example of how Cisco's grown. Because like back in the first season, Cisco very much hated the Ferengi. He didn't want Jake, Jake hanging around with Nog. He had this very again next generation style sort of Starfleet idea of what the Ferengi were and what that relationship was. And one of the big tensions running through Deep Space Nine from the outset and running across it, and you're right that it's never explicit as it could be, although it's very heavily implied, particularly in, as he pointed out, the profit-centric episodes, of which there maybe aren't enough to make a kind of a cohesive thread, is this tension that exists between, like, Cisco, who has come to value the uniform as something that is an integral part of himself, versus the part of Cisco who's more aware of, like, multiculturalism and this idea of, like, branching beyond the idea of what Starfleet is. And, like, this is why I buy his conflict with uh, Cal Hudson in the Marquis, and particularly why I buy it with Eddington, is that you have this idea of Cisco throughout the season, or throughout the series, struggling with this idea of whether or not he's a Starfleet captain, or whether he's a father first, or a husband first, or a friend first, or the Emissary of the Prophets, and how these things fit together. Earlier in the season, you had Rapture which very clearly put this idea of the conflict between Cisco as emissary and Cisco as Starfleet captain in conflict, where his job as Starfleet captain was to get Bajor into the Federation, his job as emissary was to keep them out of the Federation so they could be safe, and having to choose one between the two. Even outside of that, you have episodes like, say, for example, Homefront of Paradise Lost in the fourth season, where, like, again, this is Cisco encounters his commanding officer Leighton, a man in whom he has a great deal of faith, but whom he discovers very, very quickly is, you know, not necessarily a person who is worthy of that faith, who is worthy of that trust. And sort of, you know, you could argue that you see in that Cisco beginning to doubt this idea of Starfleet as an organization. Again, this is tied into other things in Deep Space Nine, where Deep Space Nine is much more wary of things like the Federation and Starfleet than other sort of Star Trek shows. I mean, you get the introduction of Section 31 later on in the sixth season, to pick one obvious example. Uh, but even episodes like, for example, In the Pale Moonlight, which go very much against the Star Trek ethos and find Cisco doing that, but with the Federation's blessing, uh, sorry, with Starfleet's blessing implicitly. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that I like about the Maquis arc, and it, it is subtle, and again, I'm willing to concede that I'm maybe either giving the writers too much credit uh, or reading far too much into it just based on surrounding context and stuff like that. But one of the things about the Maquis is that there's this sense of Cisco that he's almost projecting himself onto Eddington and onto Cal Hudson. And particularly, it's very obvious in the Maquis where Cal has just lost his wife. Cal, just like Cisco had at the start of the show. Cal just lost his wife. He was rudderless. He was looking for a direction. And he took off his uniform and he ran off to do, like, fun middle-age adventuring in space. Yeah, you, you could argue and- Cisco is almost jealous of he made the choice, that Hudson makes the choice that Cisco did not make. And he wonders what it would have been like, almost. Yeah, and you have this thing that's a very human thing to do. Which is like when you're confronted with something like that, that's something that like challenges you and makes you wonder, should I have done that? Or like, is what I'm doing right? Is instead of actually pausing and asking yourself that, you go, no, I am definitely right. This person is wrong. This person is so wrong, in fact, that I'm going to dedicate myself committedly and wholeheartedly without an ounce of introspection to proving sort of how wrong they are and how implicitly right I am in my choices. And I think there's an element of that in Cisco's interactions with Eddington going back to things like The Adversary, where they have this conversation about like Eddington's, you know, maybe lack of like career, like projection sort of forward movingness. And you had that with Cisco as well, where Cisco stayed a commander during his time at Utopia Planitia up until the adversary itself when he got promoted to captain. But you have this idea of just sort of like being there, punching the clock, 
checking in, not necessarily like wanting to excel in the way that, say, Kirk or Picard or Janeway had. And so you have this connection, I think, between how Cisco sees himself and Eddington in The Adversary. And obviously then you have the reveal in, uh, was it for the, for the cause, that Eddington's actually just going to throw the towel in and he's going to accuse, you know, Cisco of all this sort of the Federation Starfleet of being a big sham, which you get a sense that maybe Cisco's a little bit wary of or aware of because later on he's like, maybe Bajor shouldn't join the Federation because these omnipotent aliens told me that they shouldn't. Mm. And I think that you, you can get that in there. And it's very telling where Cisco's arc goes, particularly in, say, the sixth and seventh seasons, where Cisco Well, begins- before, before you get to oh, yeah, that, sorry. why... Yeah. If that's the case, right, and I'll, I'll grant you all of that, isn't this a little bit too late for Cisco to be feeling so strongly about Eddington? Like, I, if if you... Uh, Hudson, to me, makes sense because Hudson's in what? Ep- in season two? Season two, yeah. Season two. Hudson, at that point, Cisco is still fresh into his decision and still fresh into working his way into DS9. Eddington, to me, comes post-Rapture. Like, he is... Cisco is a different person after Rapture, I think. Like, Rapture is the best Bajoran Prophet episode because it's the only episode that really shows the struggle that Cisco is going through about what his job is versus what this, like, this uh, prophecy is telling them that he has to do. And Eddington, to me, if this was the case, a better written Cisco would sympathize with Eddington in a way that he never does. I Like, I... The raw rage of Cisco against Eddington is what really gets to me when I could feel that Cisco, as a better written version of where he is at his point in his life, would have a hard time so vehemently judging someone for the choice that they made because he can see all of the options that were laid out in front of him. You would disagree with that? I think that, like, in the in the context of uh, the fifth season, it's worth noting that, like, again, at the end of Blaze of Glory, Cisco very much does come around. In fact, I... My, my one issue with the episode is that Cisco's sort of coming around on editing at the end of the episode feels like it's a bit much, where he's like, um, actually, it turns out the real hero was Eddington all along. Hell of a guy, like, hell of a guy, yeah. that Eddington. Good to <laughs> yeah. know him. Yeah. Which feels like a very strong, like, again, you know, that's sort of I was talking about how, like, when you when you doubt, um, there's a tendency to kind of to double down on that doubt. And Cisco, in particular, is arguably the most stubborn of the Star Trek leads, even more than Picard. Like, once Cisco sort of commits to something, he tends to do it and he tends to stick with it. And I think that there's a willingness on the part of the writers to reveal Cisco as sort of flawed, which makes that kind of interesting in that regard. Is it um, not a yeah. missed opportunity to have, should, I, I guess I'm just like, if I were writing these episodes and I wanted to hammer this point home, I feel like Dax needs to have a conversation with Cisco about this then. And Dax doesn't really, like, I don't know if she needs to do it in this episode, but she needs to make more clear what she sees in the Eddington Cisco relationship because I don't I I to me like the the problem with it and you can just kind of go off of this is that to me it feels frequently a frequent criticism we have of a show like Discovery is that it feels like the writers have this idea for a plot that they want to get in and they'll just insert it on top of a character and it doesn't necessarily make sense for that character to be going through that at that point but they'll just be like listen this is the idea and you're going to have to do it and um characterization be damned because the plot is primary here and i think that the cisco thing is that problem and it's tied into the the still very episodic nature where as you're saying they have to wrap this up at the end and like tie it off with a little bow and so Cisco's going to be like well <laughs> goddamn that's that Eddington what a great guy even though I vehemently disagreed with him and he's the character I've screamed at the most over the, these past 5 seasons I'll still look out the window 
you know, lovingly thinking about Eddington. I, I, I'll I name find my next Tuca puree, puree the Eddington in his honor. <laughs> That's right. I just, I, I can understand where, where you're coming from with Eddington. I think the seeds are there. I guess I'm arguing more the execution, I think, is wrong for me. Yeah, and I, I can kind of see that, to be fair. There's never really a moment where the show sits down with Cisco and explains exactly what it's doing and, and when it's doing it. And I think, yeah, there there are like... And this is weird, because again, this is where you talk about the headcanon and the Maquis, and I would argue that, my, you know, the Cisco stuff is arguably just as much headcanon on my part, where it's connecting the dots. You see where Cisco is at certain points in the arc, and for me, I draw like a red thread around it. And again, not... To, I know... This is designed for people who haven't watched the entire show. But there's stuff that happens at the end of, say, the sixth season. Um, and then again, towards the end of the seventh season, where it becomes clear that Cisco finally envisions, envisions a future for himself outside of Starfleet. Right. And one of the reasons that I, again, and I think you're entirely right, maybe the connection, connective tissue isn't there. And certainly isn't there, there as strongly as... Yeah. I, I yeah. think it's not there for Eddington. I, w- I would 100% agree with you about Cisco, but I think that Eddington... And Cisco's response to Eddington is the thing that's off. But Cisco getting to that point makes sense to me. Yeah. And, I, and and for me, and again, this is probably something where I'm working retroactively, where I, I, I see that Cisco thing. And for me, and this is really, really weird when you're talking about like things like universe building and world building and the Maquis and how the Maquis fit in like the tapestry of the Star Trek universe and all this sort of stuff. And you're entirely right that they're inconsistently drawn and they don't really have a central sense of identity or purpose. Large, you know, And there are lots and lots of reasons for that. I suspect a large part of it being that you had three different creative teams working on them, or two at least, if you assume that there's continuity between the next generation and Voyager to a certain extent. Uh, but you have like these different creative teams working on them and you have the creative team that's like least invested in them being the ones who are given full charge of them once Voyager nips off to the Delta Quadrant. But at yeah. the same time, I kind of like that they work as a like I'm able to I'm able to put them in the context of Cisco's arc. And I think it's right. I think that this maybe explains the difference between you and me on this, where you're like, but they don't actually fit there if you're building like if you're building Cisco's arc from the ground up. The Maquis don't really belong there. They don't really fit. The, the edges don't really smooth. And you're entirely right, I think, to say that. I think that there is an element from me of, like, retroactively or retrofitting them, where it's like, if I lo- if you look at them from the other angle, well, I suppose they, they fit well enough in context, given, you know, the fact that they're, they kind of have to be there and they mm-hmm. have to be used. And this is probably as efficiently as they could have been used, I think, in, in, given everything else that was going on. So I, I understand and I agree entirely, I think, to a certain extent. But I, I would... Uh, I, I would probably be a bit more sympathetic towards them than you are, or towards we, their use. We uh, something we kind of like to do is um, not rewrite the show, but we like to sort of change. <laughs> uh, my, my suggestion, my my not suggestion, my question to you would be: if you were to if you were to add a simple clarifying fix to the Maquis, what would you do to them? If you if you in your in your vision of what DS Nine is, how would you improve the Maquis? Simple, like an easy way to do that. An easy way to do that would would be to tell a story using an actual colony. Um, that would be the extent of it. And I know you get bits of that in like the Maquis Part One and the Maquis Part Two. But as you pointed out, a large part of that is down. A large part of the issue with like Deep Space Nine is that Deep Space Nine, and again, I think, and again, this is me giving it too much credit, but Deep Space Nine keeps coming at the Maquis from the perspective of Starfleet officers who quit being Starfleet officers and become Maquis soldiers. You know, Eddington, Thomas Riker, Cal Hudson, and I can, you know, in my head, I rationalize that as like being a metaphor for Cisco, who is this Starfleet officer who's like trying to become, you know, who may or may not become something else, you know, if he can find the strength within himself. But you're entirely right that that creates an imbalance in using the Maquis in any 
form, in particular, like, for world building, in particular in trying to make sense of the Maquis as a political entity, rather than just, like, a Jungian expression of the lead character's psyche. So yeah, I, I, I think that what you would probably be a good thing to do would be to, like, to spend a time on a, a single episode, even, on a, on a Maki colony planet, or to have an interaction on a Maki colony planet, or to explore what it's like to live under Cardassian rule, to do something like Preemptive Strike, but from Deep Space Nine's perspective, which would be decidedly right. more cynical, uh, but also very much, and, and would therefore be better at sort of con- contextualizing it within Deep Space Nine's worldview, if that makes sense. So, and I guess this is kind of a clarifying point for me, would you view, who are the Maquis mo- most angry at? Interesting. Um, you would imagine that the Maquis should be most angry at the Cardassians, because they're the ones who are actually oppressing them. But again, this is the thing where Deep Space Nine seems to be using them thematically for its own purposes, so they become this dark sort of counterpoint or mirror to the Federation. Like, the big Maquis moment on Deep Space Nine has nothing to do with the, like, philosophically, has nothing to do with the Cardassians. It has everything to do with Starfleet and the Federation. That's that's Eddington's big speech to Sisko at the end of For the Cause, where he makes the point that Federation and Starfleet are like the Borg to a certain extent, because they want to assimilate, they want to incorporate, they want to strip down any sense of multiculturalism. Yeah. And again, like that's the juxtaposition that exists with like Cisco becoming more open to other things, like with the tube grubs, for example. And actually, like this is one of the things that I think works really well with the episode subplot, which we haven't talked about, we may talk about in a moment. But like you have this juxtaposition of Eddington, who begins as a Starfleet officer and becomes like an outsider. And then you have this subplot focusing on Nog, who began as an outsider, but organically becomes a Starfleet officer. And you have this idea of like fluid movement between being Starfleet and being other, being Starfleet and being outside of Starfleet, which, like, Deep Space Nine did better than any other one. And I think that, like, within the world of Deep Space Nine, and I think, again, this speaks to the fact that the Maquis were not designed by the writing staff on Deep Space Nine. They were designed for a purpose of launching Voyager. But you have this disconnect where Deep Space Nine's best use of the Maquis um, is to criticize a certain vision of Starfleet. And in particular, a vision of Starfleet that if you wanted to be cynical, and I think the show broaches this point on a couple of occasions, a version of Starfleet that's perhaps the version of the next generation just taken to its extreme, um, where there's like, where the Federation is, you know, almost the right way to run a society, and Starfleet is the right way to run a society, as opposed to yeah. Deep Space Nine, which is is more ambivalent about such a thing, if that makes sense. I, I guess I would just, I think they really missed the landing there of arguing what the Maquis are, because I, I see, I think the Maquis would be most effectively written if they equally hate the Cardassians in the Federation. They hate the Cardassians for what they've physically done for them, and they hate the cowardice of the Federation for lack of protection from them. And, like, I think the more modern theme is, like, as you sort of get these, uh, like, right-wing populist movements that kind of hate the governments that have put them into a certain position, that's what the Maquis are to me. And I I think that they don't focus on the, uh, outside of that line that Eddington has in the previous episode about the Federation being the Borg, they don't focus enough on what the cost of the Federation's values are. And I think that... I don't know if you have to make the Maquis more extreme, but I don't buy the fact that they're like, God, I love growing tomatoes. Like, why can't we grow <laughs> tomatoes in the Federation? It, that feels like such a stupid rationale for what they're doing. I, you could argue it's thematic, but I, I don't think it's 
if you're arguing a political storyline like this, I don't think you have enough to just rely on theme. I think you have to actually give some like solid reasons for them. And I, I think that's where the Maquis fail for me. It's that they the show is hesitant to really make them so aggressively critical of the Federation or... And, and I don't think that they want to show them as just people who hate the Cardassians and attack them all the time because that's kind of boring, so they don't bother showing that. Th- that's my main that's my main problem with it. And I guess that could move us into, we'll talk about the B-plot, but Eddington's ending, uh, I think, works for me. Uh, maybe outside of the cliche of the, you guys go on without me, I'm going to pretend to be here with a bunch of people fighting the Jem'Hadar. I... I don't like I, I guess I'm just confused about what Eddington was trying to do at the very end in a way that ties into my confusion about him as a total character where him going back for these people kind of makes sense to me, kind of doesn't make sense to me. And I guess it all comes down to whether or not I understand why Eddington joined the Maquis in the first place, which is something that I'm not entirely clear on, even though he's given us a bunch of reasons for maybe why he would want to do that. I'm not I'm, I'm hesitant to pick one and say that is the Michael Eddington that I know. This is kind of interesting because you, you talked about like this idea of, again, as you point out, the stupidity of people being like, I want to, you know, I want to grow tomatoes, therefore I'm going to join a terrorist organization. I do think that like Deep Space Nine, and this is interesting because Blaze of Glory is arguably the most sympathetic the show has ever been towards the Maquis. But like the stupidity of that is a recurring theme of all the Maquis episodes. You have Dukat yelling at the Maquis about how crap they are at torturing him because they're still sort of Starfleet and Federation officers. You have yeah. Quark yelling at the Vulcan, uh, pointing out that she's really not very good at like being a terrorist. You have Kira yelling at, at Riker, um, saying that he's still clinging to this, like he that he doesn't actually want to be a terrorist. He wants to be something else entirely. And maybe he wants to grow and go and grow tomatoes or whatever, but he doesn't actually want to fight for the freedom of his people, because if he was if he wanted to do that, he'd do it properly. And it's kind of interesting. I think, I think the most the most grown up aspect of the Maquis is the fact that they hit, they hit it a little bit in this episode. Is that what the Maquis did was part and parcel for the reasons that Cardassia joined the Dominion. Like that's good political storytelling yeah. to me. And that what that does is it shows the naivete of the Maquis because they're unwilling to sort of think big picture. Like they are, they are not the little fingers of Game of Thrones. The Maquis they're more the Ned Starks, and that should come back to bite them, and it does. And I think that's the most effective part of it. It's just a, a I, I, they don't have the moral clarity of Ned Stark in Game of Thrones that lets me latch on to them. I mean, even even then, I think the show, while, while it is mentioned here, like they ran straight into the hands of the Dominion, um, I do think that the show is quite clear that the reason the Cardassians end up with the Dominion was in large part due to the Klingons more than the Maquis. The yes, Maquis I, been, I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah, the Maquis had been sort of like buzzing like gnats around them for a year and a half and had done no real harm whatsoever. Um, and then the Klingons arrived and that sort of like devastated them. And the Maquis managed to capitalize on that to a certain extent. But even then, there's a sense that like the Klingons don't necessarily take the, the Maquis seriously. Where they're like, we gave them a bunch of cloaking devices. We figured they'd attach them to ships. They thought they might actually do something like attach them to warheads and launch them at, uh, you know, Cardassia. It never really occurred to us. Also, but also, why, why are the Klingons yeah. so scared of starting a war? That yeah. that, does, that seems very unklingony to me. The Martok is like, oh, oh, geez, I hope we don't actually kill people. That would be terrible. <laughs> I, I also love the idea that Martok, who was in a Dominion prison camp and thus cannot be held responsible in any way, shape, or form, is like really contrite when showing up with Cisco. He's like, I kind of have something to tell you. Don't be <laughs> mad. Um, it is a little bit of a strange beat, um, and it it is very strange. It's very strangely played as well. It's kind of one of those we need to get the plot there very quickly. 
Um, and yeah. I do. I, okay. I, well, the, the B plot was apparently conceived because they wanted to remind people that Martok was still in the station. Like that's the whole that's the whole reason that that plot really exists is because we haven't seen him very frequently. We want to know that he's walking around carrying a pad around him. <laughs> well, to be fair, Deep Space Nine has done you know sort of more with less and so on and so forth. But I mean, the the thing with that is that like again, you have the sense of the Maquis not really mattering and being even a joke to the Klingons, where it's like, sure, we'll throw a bunch of cloaks at them. Maybe it'll annoy the Cardassians a little bit. We, this isn't necessarily, like, this isn't important enough to be part of our strategy. And I'm fairly sure that we didn't really mention it until it became possible that there was genocide involved. That's the point at which you're like, okay, maybe we need to draw attention to this. Um, yes. But yeah, I, And I kind of, I, again, there is there is a cynicism there, I think, that kind of works with regards to the Maquis, where I, I tend to give the show the benefit of the doubt in, in these sort of situations, where there's a sense of, the Maquis not really making sense or not really being a big problem, like, I don't see it as being, like, a shortcoming of the show to a certain extent. I don't see it as a failure of the show. I see it, you know, the show, I think, does enough in those small scattered appearances to make it clear that the Maquis aren't a big deal because the writers forgot about them. The Maquis just aren't a big deal because the writers think they're a bit crap. Um, yep. And it's, it's kind of interesting when you talk about the closing scene with Eddington, because you almost have, like, again... There's almost a sense in which, first of all, he gets to be the hero in the way that he wanted to be, obviously back in for the uniform, you know, with the Jarvet and the loaf of bread and stuff like that, and picturing himself as the hero of his own narrative. Again, as opposed to a terrorist, he sees himself as a hero. But there's something very Starfleet in, in like, in Eddington's sort of final arc, where it's like, actually what I'm doing is embarking on a rescue mission to bring these civilians back from inside a war zone. Um, and that's my end objective here. It's not actually to commit genocide. It's not actually to, like, scar Cardassian, to launch a war between the Federation and the Cardassians. Just because, you know, despite the fact that's probably what a real terrorist organization would want to do in this situation, Eddington still dreams of being a hero. Eddington still sees himself as a man who saves lives. As much as he's flippant, as much as he's coy, um, he's still, there's a sense watching Blaze of Glory that Eddington, you know, while he may have left Starfleet or whatever, he's still got this very strong moral sensibility, which is similar to Tom Riker's sensibility in Defiant, where it's like he's still maybe a good guy underneath it all in inverted commas, even if he's sort of like a bit taken with his own ego. He still sees yeah. himself as a hero rather than a terrorist. And I kind of like the Blaze of Glory plays with that. Yeah, yeah, I just wish I wish at the end, whether, you know, Cisco and Eddington are standing down, Eddington has this realization about like, protecting people and everything and comes to that it comes to terms of that and cisco's just like motherfucker like what do you think starfleet represents here like what what have we been talking about for these past five seasons it's almost as if you were a security officer Um, (laughs) have you um, done this before um i will will say by the way before we move on i love kim friedman's direction of this there's a very like 80s action movie almost like shane black vibe to certain parts of this where it's like (laughs) the buddy comedy you never knew you needed Eddington and Cisco, uh, where they're sort of like skulking through this 80s action movie set where somebody's left a fog machine on. But you get these yes. wonderful shots of like Cisco holding a rifle with sort of the camera giving you this nice sort of depth of field on it, which is really impressive as well. Uh, Friedman, noticeably the uh, crazy Jewish mom from Instagram. Um, uh, she became a sort of minor celebrity after her work on the Star Trek franchise. Emmy nominated oh, really? director. Yeah. Um, there's oh, a, interesting. Her, her daughter wrote a whole book about um, her unique style of parenting, uh, which is interesting to check out. Um, <laughs> but just a bit of context there. She also directed this, the ship earlier in the season as well. Um, she's really, really good. 
I really yeah, she does good action. Yeah. Good, good action director for uh, network TV of the 90s. Yeah, yeah that's it exactly. Um, so I really, really like those aspects of it. Sorry, just before we move on. She, um, you know, one of the things that's kind of struck me is that TNG obviously is the popular Trek series and it got remastered. But boy, watching a lot of these DS9 episodes, uh, every single Klingon episode, every cave episode, you're really <laughs> just crying. You're really crying out for like, can we just remaster the dark scenes in DS9? Yeah. Like TNG was so brightly lit. I'm not even sure in context we need the remaster. Like it's obviously nice to have and everything, but if you had one choice, I think DS9 with all of its cave sets and uh, the station lighting and everything would be the one that would really benefit the most from it. Where you have this weird muddy effect as well. And I mean, it looks great. It was a conscious choice and stuff. But there are points where you're just like, I would like to be able to distinguish between brown and black um, in like right. the way that you're lighting these sets. Um, and I mean, yeah. it's very atmospheric and very effective. But like, again, so much attention goes into this. It would be great to see. And actually worth noting, actually, when you talk about Cisco as the least Starfleet captain, Avery Brooks is by far the most action movie of Star Trek leads. Again, I think I've talked about this on, the, on this podcast before, where like one of my defining Cisco moments is from, I think, Dramatis Personae in the first season, where, again, this is one of those great Avery Brooks starts chewing scenery episodes. Uh, but it's the point where he throws, he's attacked in ops, throws some guy into the pit, and then jumps into the pit after him. And it's yeah, kind of like, yeah. I can buy Cisco as an action hero in a way that, like, yeah, like I like First Contact and I like Starship Mine, but like Cisco's not going to be throwing saddles at anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's hundred <laughs> percent true. It, it, it's um, yeah. I, I guess I'd have the the every single Kirk fight up there. But I think that yeah, it, Brooks approaches it in a little bit of a different way. He is kind of the blend between the two of those two, uh, Picard and Kirk. Anyway, but let's see here. Do I have anything else that I really need to say about this one? I thought I did, but no, I guess not. Um. I do like the sense of impending dread that's running through the fifth season as a whole. And even in like small episodes like this, you talk about the serialization of it. But this wonderful sense that like stuff is going down and tensions mounting and war is kind of inevitable at this point. Yeah, no it's, it's a, otherwise it's a totally pointless quirk scene in this. They really <laughs> only insert that just to remind you that the Dominion are out there, which they have not really, they kind of moved away from them for a little bit as they want to do through the long season. But the... The whole reason of Quark was his incredibly long story about Morn hitting him with a chair <laughs> is uh, just to remind you that the Dominion are knocking on the door, yeah. But but even beyond that, you have, like, the, the whole plot of the episode is normally about preventing, like, a little spark that will lead to a war between the Dominion and, and the Federation. But there's this yeah. sense of, like, inevitability that runs through it. And, I mean, you even have it in stuff like Ties of Blood and Water earlier in the season as well, where you have things like the, the Kenny Gamore and you have this idea of, like, getting all these valuable secrets out before, like, the war arrives, as it's inevitably going to do. And I really like that sense of, like, dread that permeates the season, where you have even, like, this is a relatively standalone episode, but... It's infused by this and you have this sense of like everything is like a now admittedly, yes, 30 warheads landing on a populated planet, you know, would probably spark a war in any situation one imagines. But you have this idea of the whole Alpha Quadrant being a giant tinderbox at this moment in time, which I, I really like in terms of like getting, you know, world building and creating a sense of context. That's something that yeah, Deep Space yeah. Nine does really, really well, even before it sort of jumps head first into proper serialization, you know, down the line. No, they've really, um, the one thing that they do really fantastically is treat the races as if they all operate under their own established values, which something like TNG doesn't really do. Like you'll, when TNG runs into the Romulans, it's kind of a one-off. You have no larger sense of what Romulus is up to, really, or like how Romulus would respond to a threat like the Dominion. And I think that's one of the best things that the Dominion do is that they 
allow all of the races of the Alpha Quadrant to react to a threat in their own custom way, which yeah. I think is really nice. Like we we just got done with the uh, Soldiers of the Empire, which is that you know where where Homefront showed that the Federation would give up on its values to protect itself from the Dominion. The Klingons basically lose their confidence in the face of the Dominion, yeah. uh, which is such a Klingon reaction to it. I think is really fantastic. Um, and and the being supplanted by the Jemadar, this weird thing where the Jemadar are almost more Klingon Klingons. Let's see here. Uh, well, we're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. We're going to come back, read some patron thoughts, and then give our final thoughts about this episode, which is called Blaze of Glory. I'll say this for him. He was a complicated man. If you ask me, Eddington couldn't have picked a better way to go, at least from his point of view. He was a romantic, and what is more romantic than a glorious death in defense of a lost cause? He died fighting for what he believed in. I called him a traitor once, but in a way he was the most loyal man I ever met. He was a marquee, right up to the bitter end. Hey everyone, welcome again to the Radio Star Murders. Today we'll be covering Blaze of Glory by John Bon Jovi off of the Young Guns 2 soundtrack. And if I, you know, had more care to commit to that bit, I would, but I don't want to waste anybody's time more than I already have. Uh, Blaze of Glory, Deep Space Nine, uh, pretty good. Uh, the setup of the cloaking device missiles is cool, uh, even though it turns out to be a fake in the end. Uh, it's 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 an interesting concept of of um, <clears throat> really of uh, uh, the uh, consequence of selling arms to people uh, to a uh, possible terrorist organization. Um, that was pretty interesting. Uh, it the stuff with Eddington, I I liked like. I want to say half of it. Uh, I thought the first few scenes with Eddington and Cisco were really good, especially the uh, the the one where they talk about the replicator food versus the fresh food. I thought that was really good. Uh, and up to that point, I thought this was going to be my favorite episode dealing with the Maquis. But after that, it I don't know. It just sort of was only okay for me. Um <clears throat> I didn't really care for his, uh, Eddington's turn, um, you know, change of heart was a little abrupt and kind of weird, and that whole calling his bluff thing was, I, I didn't totally understand the point that Cisco was trying to make there. Um, but I, I did like the stuff with Eddington's wife, and, you know, I don't know. It's just as a rescue story, it's fine, I guess. Um, and the last scene was kind of, was, was interesting, uh. But I, I feel like they could have spent more time debating some the, the, the ethics of the Maquis and, and stuff. Or I don't know. Uh, maybe that stuff is played out at this point and they just needed to wrap it up. But I like that stuff here. Um, I didn't really care for Nog's subplot, ex- especially since he uh, apparently has no respect for Jake Sisko, fuck machine. Um, but yeah, it was just a, a fairly throwaway plot, but I, I did like him standing up to the Klingons and I thought that was kind of fun, but ultimately I thought it was just, uh, it seemed like the kind of episode that would have benefited from them sticking to the main plot for the majority of the episode. Uh, but anyway, this has gone on long enough. Uh, I also liked when they fly through the Hot Topic fire screensaver. Uh, so I'll throw it back to Wes 
and see you next time. Bye. All right, everybody. So, Darren, quick question. Have you seen the Orville, any of the Orville episodes? I have not. I gave up on it a little bit through the first season. I think I got about six episodes in, the, the baby sex change episode. Um, okay. That was about the point where I stopped. I keep hearing I should go back, but time is short, and maybe I'll go back eventually, but I don't see it being sort of a thing that I will rush back to, unfortunately. Well, after that ringing endorsement, you guys, uh, sorry, you yeah, guys sorry. who love, <laughs> you guys who love the Orville, can uh, we're doing a special offer on Patreon.com/slash The Penske File. If you are a member of the five dollar up tier by June fifth, you're going to get our coverage of four Orville episodes. Oh. We have not seen any Orville either, Darren. So I, oh, I, I, okay. we don't have any. I didn't mean to we cast don't have any, any shades. Pre- <laughs> yeah, preconceptions. No, no, we we, <laughs> we have no uh, pre-existing uh, thoughts about the show. But our audience wants to say it, uh, see it. Although I have some deeply political thoughts about what liking the Orville means about about you as a person. Uh, but I, I share the same thoughts about people who really love Discovery. So I think I'm, I'm more in the meta commentary aspect than anything. But you do that, you can get those Orville episodes by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Penske file. And also people who are captain tier there get a little bit of a shout out. So thank you very much to Andrew Cherlog, Ben Douglas, Bradley Killens, Captain Quark, Cardinal Doomsday, Christian Pouch, David Kay, Dwayne Hackett, Eric Johnson, Yarpy, Joint Mango, Kyle Barrett, Matt Flores, Matt Cutler, Matt Ross, Michael Pond, Mike Burnett, Nathan Elliott, Nick Sergi, Russ Grimm, Sam Custer, Grim Santo, Sean Spinobi, Stephen Cobb, Tark Latif, and Will Yates. Thank you guys very much for supporting the show. And now we go into our patron thoughts. If you're a patron, you can leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes. We read them and react to them. Zam Nuclear Wessel says, Blaze of Glory, the Maquis Klingon Alliance, and with it, the Maquis' ambitions going from survival to conquest are such a natural development that I wish the show had articulated them earlier when they would have been more relevant. Still, Eddington's final mission seems very right for him. Next up, Holly McLaughlin says, Michael Eddington's back and it's awesome. His dirty double-crossing of Benjamin is a fitting uh, recompense. Is that a word? It must be. Yeah. For how Benjamin betrayed his own values a few episodes ago. I love the idea that the Maquis are more fearsome enemies than the show thus has thus far given them credit for. Uh, are they yeah. are they more fearsome enemies i mean they don't actually do the genocide plot i mean they they, they don't they sort of like it's a very they, very good feint and it's actually interesting again that 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 was a very good observation by the way from the, the commenter there who's sort of like i never it never twigged with me before with the juxtaposition of like cisco poisoning entire planets versus eddington threatening to nuke a planet um yeah which gives you a nice yeah. contrast between the two sorry yeah ab- absolutely no I, i'd agree and i yeah, I, I wonder what happened to the cloaking devices. Are they just not, are they just not using those things? Where are they? Given how the show uh, has treated the Maquis, I guarantee you what happened is they installed them and they didn't work, possibly blowing up, killing four or five Maquis. <laughs> you, know what, you know what they should have done? When they got down to the planet, uh, Eddington should have walked over to a corner and like pushed a little panel and his tomato plants uncloaked. And he's like, oh, thank God. My, toma- my tomatoes. The real priority. The cloaking device. <laughs> So, oh, Captain Quark says that's that's the actual mission. It turns out Eddington wasn't going back for the civilians. He was just worried about his tomatoes. It's like as soon as he arrived, though, he realized he didn't want to look stupid in front of Cisco. So he's like, "Yeah, I actually meant to save the civilians. That's what I was doing. That was the plan all along." Every time he's falling down when he's getting shot, it's just the ADR uh, tomato squishing noises as he's got like pockets full of tomatoes trying to get out of there. That's what's in uh, the barrels. Captain Quark. Captain Quark says a fitting conclusion to both Michael Eddington's character and the Maquis. Eddington finally gets to shuffle off his mortal coil as the romantic hero he always wanted to be. His ending is tragic, although he saved his wife and a small group of Maquis, ultimately the cause he fought and ended his Federation career for is a futile one. Then again, perhaps he knew that all along and it was part of the appeal? 
I just wish we had a crawl crossover, crossover and he used Glaive to dispatch a few of the Jem'Hadar at the end. All right, and then Christian Pouch. I enjoyed the verbal sparring between Cisco and Eddington, although I've always been more on the side of Cisco in these things. Eddington never really picks apart Cisco's position other than saying, quote, how can you eat replicated food? Clearly there is no saving you, end quote. I'm not sure how to explain it better, but this Eddington feels different from the Eddington in previous episodes. He's despondent, but it makes a lot of jokes and quips. I can't decide if it fits with a guy who's lost it all or if he should have been more depressed and not as flippant. On the other hand, I'm glad that Eddington never changes his mind to agree with Cisco, as I feel that would have been a gross betrayal of his character. Overall, I enjoy the episode, although I think for the uniform is better. Uh, Kyle Barrett says, I hate uh, hate the, quote, go on without me, I'll only slow you down trope. So Eddington's death is disappointing, and his characterization seems slightly different every time we see him. But overall, the episode is fairly good. Did the Maquis actually push the Cardassians to the point of collapse, or was Eddington simply taking credit for what the Klingons did? I feel like Cisco should have called him out on it. The Nog subplot is fun and angry as Cisco is always great. Also, if the Maquis had been wiped out, does that mean that Tom Riker is dead? Uh, Tom Riker's in the uh, Cardassian prison world, isn't he? He is indeed. Um, I do. I, at this point. I do love the idea of Cisco just being a dick. Like I love that there's a limit to how much of a dick Cisco's willing to be when he's asking for help from Eddington. I feel like if they're yes. having that meeting and Eddington's like, "Oh, we brought the Cardassians to their knees," and Cisco was like, "Well, actually, the meeting might have gone somewhat <laughs> even worse than it did originally." Um, <laughs> I've got this spreadsheet of yeah. kills, uh, kill death ratio that I've been working on. Yeah. Matthew Ross with the final comment, a good and appropriate farewell to a mild villain and a foil to Cisco. The verbal tete-a-tete is missed until Cisco's other enemies come forward, but the verbal sparring and daring here is fun to watch, although Cisco holds all the cards. Both actors, Ken Marshall and Avery Brooks, are well-suited in their performances. The side scene with Quark in the infirmary must have been to have all the actors paid that week and serves as nothing else. The Nog confrontation was cute, but not a surprise, uh, but not a surprise after-school special. To me, the best speech about the almost Luddite desire of Eddington's food tastes down to the tomatoes were well-scripted in what I remember the most of that episode and feeds the DS9's consistent challenge to the Federation's root beer insidiousness. I also like that Cisco was not flipping Eddington's lucky loony coin at the end as, as other shows may have done. That was a weird mention of his, of his coin. What a, what a bizarre thing. It was more fitting that Cisco points out that Eddington was the most loyal man he had met and fades to black. I mean, I actually right. I actually love the idea that the Lucky Looney scene exists entirely to be reverse engineered for the line, speaking of things you thought you lost, which is a much more, mm. much more elegant way of transitioning. Again, this is the writing on Deep Space Nine being generally stronger than I think some of the other Star Trek shows in terms of nuts and bolts, because you have that transition from character beat to plot beat, but in a way that feels organic and you couldn't entirely cut from the episode without losing something. Like on The Next Generation, yeah. you have a conversation about like, oh, Picard is teaching you know Data how to paint. Well, I guess we better walk to the bridge in a sequence that could be cut for time if this runs over, as opposed to here right. where it's like, well, I'm going to talk about my Canadian coin for some reason. And <laughs> it's like, whatever we do, insert a line to bridge them so we can't cut them. Yeah, that's uh, the writer's defense against being cut is just like put put your bizarre point that you want to have your episode be about, which is this loony coin, and just insert it right into the middle of Eddington explaining exactly what's going on. Uh, let's see here. That's it. Guys, thank you. Patrons, thank you very much for supporting the show. Thank you for leaving your thoughts. And now we come to our final thoughts. So, Darren, we rate these on a scale of one to five. If you uh, would be so kind, why don't you let me know about what your final thoughts, your final summary, and then give me a rating for it. 
Uh, I, I still really, really like Blaze of Glory. I think it does a lot of things that Deep Space Nine does very well, and I think it does a lot of the subtle stuff that it does very well as well. You know, it's, it's not just about setting up a story going forward, it's also about wrapping up as it goes. And in particular, this idea of Deep Space Nine, particularly as contrasted with a lot of modern dramas, there's a weird fetishization in modern sort of like television around the idea of like five-year plans and having arcs mapped out ahead of time. The Deep Space Nine writers were generally quite candid about, like, making it up as they go along. To the point where I think that, like, <clears throat> In Purgatory's Shadow originally began as a plot about Michael Eddington breaking out of prison in the style of, was it, uh, what's that one, The Great Escape? Um, and then sort of evolved yeah. in a completely different direction that completely changed the dynamic of the show and led to, like, the following two seasons because the writers couldn't get that original story to work. Um, but even even here with Blaze of Glory, you have a, a case where the writers have been, like, given stuff that they didn't necessarily plan to have and, like, improvising around that. And also deciding that, like, they've done all the improvisation they can and wanting to cut it off, um, which is, it's, you know, something that a lot of modern shows don't necessarily do very well. They don't decide, like, when a plot has run its course to, like, to cut the cord on it and to say that we're done with this. There's a tendency to let it carry over because, like, to cut the cord means admitting defeat or whatever. Um, so I really, yeah. really like... And then the, then the character ends up in the next season with a plot that doesn't really make any sense because they don't have anything else for that character to do at that point. Yeah, and I yeah. think Deep Space Nine is quite good at that, generally speaking, as well. It has a nice tendency to do that. I think Blaze of Glory does that as well. So it, it does this wonderful thing where it's building towards the end of the season while also, you know, clearing the decks a little bit so the show can focus on what it wants to do going forward. I think it works very well. And again, we talked about this earlier in the episode. I know we disagree. I like it as a Cisco episode. I like it as, like contextualizing like the show's broader view of where Cisco is and where he's going. I think you're right that it doesn't necessarily work in an ABC fashion. Like if you're watching this in sequence going from Rapture to this, it feels like they're happening in the wrong order. But I think that it works generally speaking in terms of having like an overview of Cisco on the fifth season. Um, so I, I really, really like this. I even like, again, the, as it was described in the comments, the after school special starring Nog, if only because it, mm. it's, I think when I was talking about the ascent with Clay, we were talking about like, the fact that so many of the plots, secondary plots in Deep Space Nine are lifted from sitcoms. And I suspect a large part of that sound the fact that Iris even Bear started out doing stuff on sitcoms, pitching plots to Taxi and stuff like that. But it works relatively well, in large part because the characters feel so well-formed and so, you know, you enjoy spending time with them in an almost soap opera fashion. So I'm going to give this a four out of five. Excellent. I like the, uh, the Nog stuff because... Uh, for whatever reason, Sirach Lofton really decided he was going to act in this episode. <laughs> like he, he's he's gloriously Avery Brooks esque yeah. in all of his scenes. He's like the one scene where Nog is sitting. Uh, I guess they're they're paying homage to something, but they're, they're sitting in Quark's bar, and Nog is sort of leaning backwards in his chair. Jake Sisko is like slumped, like he's been drinking all afternoon in the chair. I don't really understand why he's doing that. Writing and, is uh, hard, Wes. Writing is hard. Is, <laughs> And Jake Sisko also does the really annoying friend thing of when someone is obviously lying to spare someone's feelings, he comes in and is like, you didn't tell me that. You made it sound terrible at the very start. <laughs> that's a that's a brutal that's a brutal friendship trait right there, Jake Sisko. Um, that is an I'm homage to, um, to Henry Fonda's character in My Darling Clementine, actually. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I knew, I knew it was something. But uh, I'm going to say th- I, I don't have a problem with Blaze of Glory. I think that the Eddington and Maquis storyline is like the early struggles that the show had with its serialization where they're stuck with an idea and they kind of they've already written how it starts and then they want to go in a direction but they have a hard time readjusting the route that they want to go and making it seem like it's a fluid motion um i think that we we talked before there's a problem with super planning out your plots uh ahead of time which is what discovery suffers from but 
There's there's also the Breaking Bad style of making it up as you go, which DS9 is more likely yeah. to do. But I think that Breaking Bad does it intentionally because they have a shorter episode order and they know that that's what they're doing, where DS9 kind of stumbles into it because they start off as episodic and then decide that they want to build off of that. Um, I, w- I would say that this is kind of an early struggle there where they don't know where they want to go five years ago. And so the start kind of has trouble getting to where they want to be consistently. I, I think it's good but I do have problems with it in this sort of modern era of watching it. And I, I always wish it could just be a little bit stronger. I, I always feel the material is right there. It's just the execution is a little bit off. I'm going to give it a three. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I still think For the Uniform is by far the best Eddington episode, which is his betrayal um, episode. And I think that's going to be it. I think Eddington had a sort of a long road to hoe from there. And I think that he never really quite matched his For the Uniform decision. That's it. Thank you guys very much. I'm going to give it a three. Darren gives it a four. Decent episode. We're almost at the end. We have In the Card... No, we have Empok Noor after this, and we have In the Cards, and then we have Call to Arms to finish up the season. So, Darren, um, you do movie reviews. Why don't you lay out some of your uh, latest takes on some movies that people would be interested in? Uh, well, assuming that we're going out relatively live, um, I... Watched, obviously, I've seen Endgame, because uh, everybody, everybody on the planet has seen Endgame, possibly at least twice. Um, wasn't necessarily a huge fan of it for complicated reasons, um, but I also saw Detective Pikachu, which is surprisingly so much better than one would expect a movie <laughs> called Detective Pikachu to be. It's not, like, it's it's very clumsy, it's very flawed, like, its characterization is awful, its approach to exposition is clumsy, but, like, it does this thing, and I think it's, like... I'll give it a little bit of credit and I'll say that it, it's, you know, they have put a lot of thought into their world and how the world works. But there's also a sense that, like, they're not aware of how weird the movie is. So it kind of steps backwards into it because it assumes that everybody watching the movie knows all about Pokemon. It assumes it has a mm. built-in audience. I know nothing about Pokemon. Oh, so I watching see. Detective Pikachu, yeah, was like <laughs> stepping into something like Blade Runner um, or something like the original Star Wars, where it's like... I'm supposed to just be on board with this. So the movie doesn't over-explain it to me. So I have to pick it up from context. And I kind of enjoyed that. I also saw Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, uh, which is very good. I would wholeheartedly recommend that. It's a teen sort of raunch comedy about two girls who decide that uh, having spent four years studying, they want to have one wild night of partying before their graduation. Nice. Uh, It's very good. It's got a really great cast as well. Is it... I think it's Caitlin Devlin, um, or Caitlin Deaver, um, is fantastic in it. She was in Short Term 12, which has turned into quite the launching pad for talent. That was the launching pad for Brie Larson, Lakeith Stanfield, um, and the director of, I think it's, is it uh, the Shang-Chi movie that's coming out from Marvel in a couple of years as well. Mm. Uh, but uh, I would wholeheartedly recommend um, that movie, which is Booksmart. Cool. Uh, Great. Uh, well, thank you very much for your thoughts about that. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Guys, thank you very much for listening. We, uh, we're we done with this one. we got a couple episodes left. If you want to support the channel, go to all the social media links. That's Facebook, Twitter, Discord, blah, blah, blah. You can go to patreon.com slash thepenskapel if you want to support the show there. Or if you're interested in Orville episodes, you can head there as well. We are done. Thank you very much for listening. It's Blaze of Glory. We're going to be back with Empok Noor on Thursday. All right. See you then.